Friday, September 25th. Welcome to the Game of Life, a mentoring podcast and community conversation. In the Game of Life, everybody makes the team, but how you play is up to you. I am so pleased to have with me uh, my brother, a good friend, and the chief of the Miami-Dade Schools Police Department, Chief Edwin Lopez. How you doing today, brother? I'm doing fantastic, Gail. Hope all is well, man. All is well, all is well. We are living in some uh, some trying times, my friend. I don't need to tell you that at all. Uh, we welcome all those from both near and far that are tuning in with us today and just want to have a conversation with you, Chief, and uh, we always keep it real, uh, and that's what I appreciate and love about you, brother. Uh, and uh, let's just start off by just giving some context so people will know who you are uh, and uh, your journey uh, in law enforcement. So just tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about you. So I'm adjusting my. I'm getting. I'm getting used to the Zoom. The Zoom life. <laughs> the Zoom life. Um, man, um, my name is Edwin Lopez. Uh, just a you know, just a kid from Miami, man. Uh, grew up here. Um, son to two immigrant parents. My you know my mother, my mother and father. My mother was born and raised in Spain, actually, and my father um, left Cuba uh, and ultimately landed in the U.S. via Spain uh, when. Um, the communist regime took over in the late 50s and early 60s in Cuba, um, looking for freedom. You know, like many other, like many other um, immigrants that came to this country. So um, he he eventually landed in Miami uh, with my mom uh, in the early 70s, and and uh, you know grew up, landed here, uh, grew up in uh, in uh, the Hialeah area uh, for for a little bit of uh, for my early years, and then. Uh, uh, lived in, uh, you know, bounced around during those years. My parents, you know, not knowing the native language, mostly worked in factories and in construction. And, and uh, you know, my brother and I, uh, my brother was, was a teacher in the, here in Miami-Dade County as well. Um, uh, both of us, you know, being raised, but we were very fortunate to, um, to, to be involved in sports. And that's where we kind of, you know, were able to kind of travel uh, across the South Florida playing sports, you know, uh, building uh, rapport with people who, uh, didn't look like us, uh, which was awesome. You know, uh, we were able to to travel. We were able to, um, and, and that's the beauty of sports. The sports, uh, you know, at, during that time, and I'm sure now as well, uh, for kids, uh, it doesn't it didn't really matter how much money you had, um, how you look. It's if you can ball or you're not. You know, and 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 we were uh, very competitive, and we played sports, and my, our parents gave us the 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 freedom to to play outside and really enjoy uh, those those luxuries that are, that are free, you know? Um, and it's, it's, it's sad. It's something that we'll probably talk about uh, a little later on, but it's sad that, you know, a lot of the parents now are scared to have their kids play outside. So they, their kids are growing up in front of, in front of tablets and smart devices and playing video games. And it's really putting a damper. And I think part of that is connected to the nexus of, of some of the root problems that are going on in our, in our country right now, including some of the social justice kind of issues and, and just the child obesity and some of the other health concerns that we have in general. So, um, yeah, I just grew up here when product of the Miami-Dade County public school system, um, you know, uh, growing up, growing up with a fear of law enforcement, uh, just because, you know, didn't really know any cops and my interaction with law enforcement were always, um, negative, you know, and, and, uh, you know, we, we really um, didn't know uh, any better. So it, it took uh, me to become a police officer and trying to start making that change to really uh, try to try to help other youth uh, not grow up with a fear of law enforcement. You know, I remember uh, my grandmother um, holding my hand at going to Kmart 
um, and threatening me if I, if I would misbehave, she would point at the police officer and say, I'm going to have the police officer, uh, you know, take you to jail. So just those uh, little experiences uh, contributed to the fact that um, I grew up with that kind of fear toward law enforcement. And um, it, it's prevalent and it's real and it's not uh, what we want happening now, but um, it's still to this day going on. I see it all the time. So it's something that we're trying to to curtail. But yeah, I, I, I was fortunate enough to get into college on a scholarship um, and I graduated with a degree in education, uh, became a teacher with no aspiration of going into law enforcement. And um, a year and a half into my teaching career, uh, I met a police officer who was doing a career day at the elementary school where I worked. Um, and I built a rapport with that police officer. I ended up uh, kind of taking a liking to the law enforcement field. Um, and I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and go with the school board police department because I thought that I would be able to make the most change working directly with kids on a daily basis. So fast forward, uh, you know, throughout the years, I've been very fortunate and blessed to work in a multiple capacities. And uh, I think, you know, Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior has put me in a spot to really impact kids. I, I feel that um, there's many people that could have done this position, but, you know, I was put in a spot where, um, where I'm going to take as much advantage of that as I can in terms of impacting our youth. I've been so fortunate to work as a detective, working gangs and narcotics, working internal affairs, investigating police misconduct. Um, so I've, I've, I've been able to go up to the ranks and really work in a lot of entities that have given me a lot of um, insight on law enforcement, how to make change in a department um, on both ends, taking, you know, bad guys to jail sometimes and also taking, uh, you know, taking police officers to jail, making arrests. So I've arrested police officers and I've arrested, uh, you know, criminals on the street. I've done both. But more than that is I've given kids breaks. You know, I've given kids breaks. Um, when, when you introduce a young child to the criminal justice system, um, you are hampering them. Um, and it's unfortunate that, you know, that some kids based on the police officer that they run into determines their future. So on Monday, you may, you know, commit a misdemeanor infraction like trespassing at a park or marijuana possession or some, you know, a mistake that a kid makes and you run into a, a, an officer that utilizes more discretion, you may get a break and a second chance and meet an officer that that becomes actually your mentor. But if you that officer took a vacation day on that Monday and was off and you run into a secondary officer that didn't have that mindset, your future could be completely altered. So that is what really kind of bothers me about this, this profession, um, that sometimes your fate relies on uh, the actual officer that you run into. Um, and, and as a juvenile, um, there's many instances where I may have been arrested, whether it was a fight, whether it was a trespassing at a park, you know, things that we didn't even consider or know it were, was a crime. Um, but I, I never ran into that police officer that really um, introduced me to the criminal justice system. I ran into one later on in life, uh, in my teenage years, that, that actually gave me a break. Um, and I'm very fortunate for that. But unfortunately, not every kid gets that break. So as a police chief, I try to push that down to my officers. I think uh, that our officers get it. They understand it. We hire uh, officers that have that mindset. It's why we've had a drastic reduction in police arrests uh, here um, over the last 10 years. Um, it's why... Um, Officer, uh, our officers here in Miami-Dade County as a whole, and specifically in my agency, adopt that mindset. Uh, but we have to make this a national issue because our kids here in Miami shouldn't have an advantage over kids um, in Milwaukee or in any other uh, you know, city or small uh, suburb in this country. So you, you hit on so many different things <clears throat> and it just reinforces why we need to have these conversations. Long before you put on the badge, you were in the hood playing ball 
and understanding relationships, breaking down barriers through sports. Long before you put on the put on the uniform and had a badge, you were in the classroom building relationships with kids and teaching. Long before you put on the badge, you had negative interactions with law enforcement, which framed a mindset that, you know what, if I'm introduced to this profession, uh, I will be different. Uh, and so I want everybody to understand uh, on the Game of Life Mentoring Podcast, Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Miami Community Conversation, this is apolitical. We don't take sides. We stand on one side, humanity, humanity. And I'm talking to Chief Edwin Lopez, a police chief who was a, who was a human being who cares about children, families, the community, breaking down barriers. I'm in the meeting, and I know you didn't say this, but I got to just go ahead and say it. When we talked about bigs and blue with your department, we had you have the largest school police department in the United States. Is that correct, sir? That is accurate, sir. And you told your officers, uh, this is real. People don't trust uh, officers, and we need to do something about that. And so I, I just commend you as a leader, as a police chief, as a human being. And what you said, the sensitivity, a person's fate, let me take it one step further, someone's life could be absolutely lost with the decision of one person who's authorized and empowered to protect and to serve. That's a very, very delicate balance that is hitting America squarely in the face. Uh, and that's why mentoring is so important. And so Chief, when we think about school police, when we think about uh, school safety, you know, here in South Florida, we were in the world uh, was just heartbroken. And I remember vividly where I was driving not far uh, from Parkland when it occurred, uh, literally coming from out of town, driving home. And what has changed with school policing since the Parkland uh, tremendous, horrific uh, tragedy? A, a couple of things have changed, uh, not only in, the, in, in terms of state statute and laws that, that uh, have uh, been enacted after Parkland, but also uh, in, in the culture of school policing and school safety. Uh, before Parkland, there was a, a, a um, in the mid-2000s, two, mid 2005, 2006, there was a huge swing into the community policing uh, components into schools, which was awesome. It kind of um, started requiring uh, not only having a cop on, on, on school grounds, but actually the interaction component. You know, certain mentorship programs were birthed during that time. Um, so it, it kind of, you know, forced the interaction, the communication with juveniles, um, and the community as a whole uh, in terms of law enforcement. But um, after Parkland, there was a huge shift in active shooter training. Um, it happened in 1999 too, after Columbine. There was a huge uh, shift into that. Um, but here locally, being that Parkland is, you know, 30 miles north of Miami-Dade County, uh, the impact was real. It was felt. Um, and the law changed where a law enforcement entity or armed guardian uh, was required at each and every school site, regardless of um, number of students, regardless of the age of students, uh, whether it was an, a primary learning center, whether it was a elementary school or middle school or high school, it required a, a, a basically a cop on campus. So as an agency, um, we had cops in every traditional high school, most middle schools, but after Parkland, um, 70 over 70% of the uh, voters in Miami-Dade County um, uh, elected to um, self-impose attacks on themselves uh, 
in, by ways of a referendum, which allowed um, basically the hiring of over 300 officers to our police department to be able to, to meet that mandate, that state mandate uh, to place a cop at every school. So active shooter training uh, was obviously required, um, but the good part was that not only active shooter training on itself, um, in addition to that, all school resource officers were required to also be certified under crisis intervention training. You know, and crisis intervention training is very important because um, it, it, it trains the officer to specifically deal with the youth um, who may be undergoing, um, you know, an episode of, 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 uh, of mental, you know, a mental case, a mental illness, a mental uh, state where they're not thinking properly, or, or sometimes just being a, a juvenile, you know. Um, just kids are going to be kids. Kids are going to make mistakes. Kids are, are going to say things that, that they uh, may see at home or in the street or on TV or on social media. Um, and our officers need to be equipped with a skill set to deal with that. And um, the state statute not only required officers to be trained um, in, in active shooter, but also under crisis intervention. Another mandated training was that they receive school resource officer training. Uh, you know, historically, um, any cop could be placed in a school. Um, now, officers at schools are required to have a specific school resource officer training. And it's not a one day course, it's a 40 hour course where the officers are, are um, you know, learning tactics to deal with juveniles, de-escalation training uh, to deal with juveniles, dealing with students, uh, uh, you know, with, with ex exceptionalities or special needs students, um, dealing with school administrators, how to communicate with the teacher, with school counselors, how to, communi how to co communicate with other outside entities, um, how to deal with students that make threats or social media hoax threats as a joke to 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 shoot school. Um, we, we, those are cases. Those are real cases that we that we deal with on a on a daily basis. So uh, we're working together uh, with those agencies to to be able to to kind of um, train our officers and their officers as well to make, ensure that the officer that we place in a school is the right officer with the right mindset and the right training. That's powerful and. I'm looking at my engineers. Uh, uh, I don't have a waiting room in place. Beauty on live TV. My next guest is already here, but he's got to wait, uh, my man, uh, Chief Moffitt. So we'll be with you in just a second, Chief. So we're going to have you just supervise our meeting as we be discussed. Now, let me tell you something, Chief. Uh, you mentioned school authority, school figures. And I used to run a, a juvenile boarding school for a young man ages 13, 18, who all had interactions with the law, Bay Point schools. Uh, when I first moved here to Miami, it was a, a powerful thing to see young men with so much talent and ability uh, just really be transformed literally uh, through mentoring, uh, through structure, through res mutual respect. Why do I say that? Because I would sit down and talk to these boys and most of them black and brown, looking like you and me, and what was very interesting uh, about this particular uh, school, I would ask the young man, how did you get started? How, what happened? There was always some negative mentoring on the street because mentoring takes place whether we like it or not. Uh, you, you, did, you work with gangs, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and as we think about mentoring that happens on the street, and whether it's an older brother or an uncle uh, or a non-family member that uses the gang as family, but what's interesting about school specifically, school police, sometimes, too often, let me be a little clearer, a young man or young lady's first interaction with the juvenile justice system is a direct result of, well, I mouthed off at the teacher, 
I disrespected, I'm not condoning that, disrespected a, a school official and they called the police, not coach me, not pull me aside. And I'm a former teacher, so I get it. Uh, and just like you said with law enforcement officers, there are those in schools today and historically that have different approaches to let's just call it disrespect, being dissed by a kid. Uh, and when you when your your men and women in uniform are called, I've seen it historically, where that young man or young lady is now in the juvenile justice system because of mouthing off or doing something or threatening. And let me just be clear again, I am not condoning disrespect or disrespect for authority in any way. It's how we deal with it. And so how important, a word I will ask of you and my other guests today, how important is de-escalation with law enforcement? You all are trained to do this. And when the kid comes in, he's ready, I'm gonna hurt somebody. I've had kids do that to me. I mean, I had a kid do this to me, threatened to just kill me. We ended up having uh, two Coca-Colas on the table. I said, bring them to me. We sat down in the cafeteria. We talked. That young man is now a college graduate. I could have had him put in jail technically based on threatening me as a school official, but we ended up having a conversation. Chief, how important is uh, de-escalation? I mean, de-escalation is at the root of, uh, of law enforcement tactics in modern society. I mean, unfortunately, historically, uh, de-escalation is is and de-escalation practices kind of run counter uh, to a lot of the traditional or historical uh, law enforcement training. Um, you know, going back decades, you know, cops were trained basically, you know, at the, at the firing range uh, to shoot, you know, minimal communication skills and force the law. Um, now there's been a, a huge pendulum uh, shift in, in the type of training that officers are getting. Unfortunately, uh, in some cases around this country, a little too late, um, but I can speak to the South Florida community and the you know, over 30 law enforcement agencies here uh, with de-escalation training. Uh, it started uh, you know, maybe, maybe 15 years ago um, with it, and it's obviously you know, been more prevalent now. Um, and, and unfortunately due to cases that we've seen across the country, but um, de-escalation is at the root of everything. I mean, as, as a parent, um, you're de-escalating, you know, as a, as a teacher, you're de-escalating, uh, you know, as you're, when you're driving, uh, you may run in situations where, you know, you're de-escalating. I mean, as a law enforcement officer, you have to, have to, you must be able to de-escalate uh, situations. People call the police only when something bad happens. Um, unfortunately, it's for, you know, most police encounters uh, are negative. Uh, someone calls 911 because they need an emergency or, or, or uh, you know, a law, law enforcement gets there and they sometimes make an arrest. Uh, enforcing, a, you know, even you stop a vehicle on the road, uh, it leads to a citation, you know, as the, the, the cloud or the perception of a negative encounter. Um, there are hundreds and thousands of incidents on a daily basis that occur in Miami-Dade County um, that could legally lead to um, uses of force, um, statutorily, uh, policies and procedures that that government police departments allow for a certain use of force based on an individual's reaction uh, to the police officer. Um, I look at my own career and there's instances that I could have um, you know, fired my weapon uh, during the course of my duty and been completely justified and taken the life of a juvenile. Mm -hmm. um, thankfully, uh, through the training, uh, not, only, not only by you know, Chief Moffitt, but other chiefs historically that have been here, um, we've 
been trained to look for alternatives to deal with certain situations. I know that taking the life of, of, of another person is an ultimate last resort. And I know that God has given me a skill set to be able to talk my way out of, a, of an encounter like that and let cooler heads prevail and be able to look at a brighter day. If you're a police officer working with kids, it's a tragedy if you're not equipped with that skill set. And unfortunately, a lot of that skill is innate in a human. That's why the hiring practices of officers are so important. There are some things that are extremely difficult to teach an adult uh, to do. Um, and a lot of that deals with your upbringing and deals with um, your experiences as a child in those formative years. Um, and the hiring practices are one of the problems that we're seeing across this country that has contributed to some of these cases. The negligent retention, the not firing officers that shouldn't be cops anymore. Whether you're looking at the George Floyd case where the officer had a historical pattern of discipline and nothing was done. That's a huge, huge issue in modern day policing across this country. We have a built-in mechanism in, in, in Miami-Dade County um, that is get, only getting better in terms of screening uh, law enforcement officers, um, but we're not there yet. Our, our process just needs to uh, be better at the initial component, not letting these officers get on initially. Um, it's something that we're pushing forward uh, in terms of reform. Um, there's still some antiquated laws in this state and country that need to change. I think we're getting there. Um, and it's unfortunate that and sad that tragedies like some of the deaths that we've seen across the country are attributed uh, to some of those, some of that's to the, some of the system failures um, in terms of law enforcement. You know, as I think about <clears throat> my kids, I mean, when in our, our families, I got a, three bodyguards and one princess. Three gentlemen and, a, and my, my baby girl. She's not the baby, but she might as well be. Uh, Alexis Nicole, shout out, baby girl. But here's the thing. If my daughter was Breonna Taylor, if my son was George Floyd, and you can go as you can state whatever you're comfortable stating, but the bottom line is you mentioned antiquated systems. If I'm sleeping in my home or if I'm just literally being okay if the law enforcement encounter takes place in Minneapolis and uh, the store merchant or owner says hey this guy is trying to buy cigarettes or whatever else and it looks like it's a counterfeit $20 bill dead dead and you just mentioned something that's so important you could have been fully justified and taken the life of a juvenile who would threaten you many times you know not, not once, many times. Um, the latitude that police officers have is very great. The responsibility is huge. You're talking about six months in a police academy, Gail, and now you can take somebody's freedom away. I mean, to go to become a doctor, you gotta go to, you gotta get your undergrad, you gotta go to medical school. It takes, you know, you gotta do, um, not internships, but you gotta do uh, um, residency, residency uh, you know, to become an attorney, you got to, you know, do your, you know, four years to get a bachelor's or more, plus another three years in law school, at least at a minimum. I mean, police officer, six months, gun, badge, police car. I mean, those are some serious uh, responsibilities for a short time as, in terms of getting education on it. Um, you know, state statute, 19 years old is the requirement to become a police officer. I mean, what life experience do you have as a 19 year old human being uh, to get a badge? 
and a gun and go out there and enforce the law. Um, it's it's not it's not a good system. That's where we talk about police reform. Uh, that's where uh, we're looking to make change. Uh, to and 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 in, in conjunction with that, being able to attract and recruit um, individuals that want to become police officers um, that are parents that are already guardians that are in the mid twenties, late twenties, early thirties. As a, as a police agency, um, that's what we've done here historically. That's what's limited, um, you know, the the negative interaction that we've had as an agency. Uh, I mean, we we come in contact with four hundred thousand students, over a million parents and guardians. You know, fourth largest school district, one of the most diverse. And if you look at the amount of cases um, that we have here that lead to um, arrests, I mean, we can be making arrests here on a, on a daily basis. You know thousands of arrests a year. We have cut down our arrests. Um, our use of force incidents historically, have a huge decline over the last 10 years. We're talking about an average of one use of force a year um, for officers, um, none leading to injuries. You know, um, I, as, a, as a police agency, we're, we're not magicians here. Um, I know that we can replicate this system throughout the state and throughout the country in terms of working with kids. Uh, and I think we'll get there. It's gonna, it takes a lot of work. Um, but unfortunately, um, or fortunately, depends on how you look at it, um, law enforcement is under scrutiny right now. And, and I welcome it. I welcome it because when you do the right thing and you, um, you operate a system that is fully transparent and you try to do what's best by kids, you welcome the microscope in your department because you know it's only, it's only going to highlight the good work you do. And I tell you what, it starts with leadership. There is no question. The face of leadership within police departments uh, needs to be people like you and Chief Moffitt, period. We need folks like Del Manuel Pratt. I'll call the names, Chief Ed Hudak, uh, Chief, you know, uh, Director Freddie Ramirez. We need folks who understand, who are comfortable dealing with, uh, with, with, with them communities of color. Our kids are afraid. So here's my question. I know we're running a little short on time, but as we build mutual trust and respect, how do we build mutual trust and respect specifically within communities of color because our littles, uh, and I'm gonna get all of you to talk to our, to our littles as well, uh, they're, they're afraid. Uh, and you mentioned it, I think with your grandma, like, okay, if you, if you, do, if you don't do that, I'm, I'm getting that police officer on you. The narrative within the hood, the narrative within the departments, the narrative within society, it sickens me. And I'll say it again when I talk with, with Chief Moffat, it sickens me when I hear someone say, uh, well, if Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter too. My God, how about humanity? Why does there have to be polar? We have to have one against the other. That doesn't help anybody. As we talk humanity, and here in the game of life, we, we keep it real. And what I'm saying to you, Chief, and my question to you is this. In the midst of clear police brutality, not every police officer, my goodness, not every department. I'll go to war with you any day of the week and many other chiefs around this, around Miami-Dade County, no question. But in the midst of clear police brutality, in the midst of overt racism, sometimes systemic as it relates to uh, certain uh, antiquated policies that have been clearly disparaging to folks who look just like me and you. How do we build that mutual trust and respect? Well, mutual trust is, is obviously best built, best built early on in life, you know, and that's why the Bigs and Blue program uh, is so impactful, I mean, the perspective needs to start during the early years where juveniles of you know, all colors and races are paired up with cops who look you know different than them uh you know 
parents and guardians get to hear the kids go home and talk about their experiences uh, with the cop. And that ultimately ends up changing the parents' perspective too. Uh, the Bigs and Blue program has a huge impact. People think it's just a cop and a kid, and it's not because the kids talk to their friends, their siblings, their parents. The cop goes home, talks to you know his or her spouse, um, talks to you know the other cops, the other law enforcement community. It not only impacts the cops and kids, but it has a, a greater impact. Um, it, it's it's that's where mutual trust starts. Um, I think that uh, obviously we don't have the luxury of waiting till the current seven-year-old becomes a 22-year-old for change. So it, it's a multifaceted approach. We got to make sure that we start at that early age now uh, through programs like this, direct programs, uh, evidence-based programs like the Bigs and Blue program, uh, programs that facilitate an officer dealing with one child where the officer, and that's what I love about this program, and I speak passionately about it because the officer gets the the, the the student gets to know that officer specifically. Cops are human beings too. You know, I'm, I get angry that there's some officers in my agency that are reluctant to be part of the program because how can you not want to be part of this program? And it's it's not you know they may be you know juggling things in their life. Cops are humans. They may maybe going through a divorce or they may be you know um, you know I have officers that you know are, are going through personal things in their lives. You know we're human beings as well, and they may feel that they don't have. Um, the, the right mental state at the time to kind of sit down with a kid every day, one-on-one -on -one or once a week. To, to So they do they, they do this anyways on a daily basis, but they just, some of them don't realize, you know, because they're not doing it under the name of Bigs and Blue. Um, but I want them to, to be part of it for accountability purposes because weeks and weeks go by and then, um, you know, you're dealing with a lot of kids at one time, but there are specific children that your program, Gail, has identified as needy. And those are the kids that really need that one-to-one -one mentorship program. All kids need positive encounters with law enforcement and our cops do that on a daily basis at schools. But there are certain kids that cops may not be able to directly impact because the, the student's not openly displaying any signs. But behind, when you peel the onion back and the layers and layers, there's something going on in that child's home that that child is internalizing and has only maybe told a select few on, on your shop and you're able to kind of make that marriage happen. You're able to pair that needy student with that police officer that has the unique personality to deal with. And, and, I, and I like that I'm speaking to, to you. It's not only you and us, that there's a, there, there are actually folks listening to this because you may have a police officer that has an interest in sports and you may have a young athlete that is going through uh, something negative or it needs that direct impact with the law enforcement officer. And there's no way that that child knows that Edwin Lopez as a chief of police um, is, you know, uh, into football or into basketball or into baseball. Um, it's, it's amazing. So unless there's a, a Gail Nelson has facilitated and, 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 and has led this national program to pair us up, um, I, I would lose that, that ability to have that direct relationship. It's not go out there and hey, uh, find a kid and build a, a you know, relationship with them. Yeah, we do that. But where do you truly make an impact? Are you truly making an impact? And the Bigs and Blue program, you do make an impact. It's evidence-based and you're able to kind of um, have that, that long-standing relationship to a student. It's not a day you know, or, or uh, for a week. You're able to see the student morphing from one uh, from a young adult into, I'm sorry, from a young child into the teenage years and many times into, into uh, adulthood. You're able to go to their middle school graduation, their high school graduation, uh, see them going to college, 
um, go to their wedding. They get, we, we've seen it all, you know, and, it, and it's through programs like this that kind of create a system where it forces you to meet with them once a week. It's not, oh, I'll make it happen. I mean, I love you like a brother, Gail, and, but we don't, we don't talk all the time. Sometimes months pass by and we don't talk or you'll send me a text or I'll send you a text. Hey, hope all is well. Everything's going okay. But if, if we would benefit from, if we had a monthly or if we had a monthly meeting that was mandated, um, cause we'll be able to have more of an impact. Well, these kids and these officers have this time carved out once a week for one hour. And it's a beautiful thing. Well, I tell you what, chief, what a great close. What a, what an incredible person. I commend you, uh, as, one of our law enforcement leaders in Miami. We're blessed to have you at the helm and we're thankful uh, for the partnership. Bigs and Blue for all those listening started uh, with the Miami-Dade School Police Department. As I think about uh, your predecessors and all those and then my next guest being one of them as a, a retired police chief Ian Moffat will soon be joining me. Uh, I thank you and everyone that made Bigs and Blue possible. It started, let me say again, with the Miami-Dade school police department. There's a legacy of leadership, a legacy of caring. Uh, and for that, uh, I, I thank you, my friend. Brother, I always appreciate you taking time out to talk to me, to promote what we're doing. It's not, when we talk about Visible being a program, this is a way of life for us down here in the 305. We will continue, continue, hear me clearly, to match children in need with caring law enforcement professionals to build mutual trust and respect because at the end of the day, humanity will always win when we do it together. Chief, have a great weekend, brother. God bless you. God bless you. Have a great weekend. I know you're a basketball fan. Go Heat. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> See you later, my friend. Later. <clears throat> coming up next, we're going to take about a 60-second break. And coming up next, my main man, my main man, retired chief, Ian Moffitt. So give me 60 seconds to get my hair right, and I'll be right back, and we're gonna get this thing started. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. We're back to the Game of Life Mentoring Podcast and the Community Conversation. Before I introduce my next guest, a brother, a good friend, 
a, a seasoned law enforcement executive, trainer, former police chief as well, retired police chief. I need to just give everybody a quick reminder uh, and to register to vote. Register to vote. Be counted. And not only that, in terms of being counted and making your vote count, uh, we have to understand here in Miami-Dade County and across this nation, uh, our census, the census helps shape our community. The data collected from the census gives us vital, vital resources that are allocated to our communities for job training, for health, for roads, transportation, parks and rec, and so much more. But here's the startling news. Only 56% of Miami-Dade County last count have responded to the census. Folks, that's just not good enough. 56%? Because if we're not counted, as we look to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic, we need the financial resources to support our communities, our economic regrowth. And this census data will help drive the vital resources we need here in Miami-Dade County. The census takes five minutes to complete. Five minutes. But it affects 10 years of our lives. And historically, minority communities have been underrepresented. It goes without saying that Black Lives Matter. It goes without saying that our Black and Brown communities need the vital resources necessary. All of our kids, regardless of their background, need the help. And so I just encourage you, on behalf of the Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Miami family, be counted. Make sure you complete your census before September 30th and make sure that you are counted. Speaking of being counted, I am pleased to welcome uh, a good friend and retired chief, uh, Ian Moffitt, uh, to the Game of Life uh, Mentoring Podcast. Ian, if you can go ahead and share your video, brother. Let's go ahead and get this conversation started, my friend. Chief, come on in. Go ahead and unmute my man. There we go. There we go. A little technical delay, but it's that's why they call it live TV. You're looking good. That baby face must run in the family, my guy. I've seen your son. I've seen your dad. I mean, you, who do we need to thank for that baby face, brother? Jeans, man. It's all the jeans. <laughs> Speaking of jeans, uh, you know, law enforcement's a family affair with you. I um, mean, it, it is a it is a journey. Uh, and so, tell us a little bit because I want folks to understand. I love personal context uh, with all of my guests uh, and where you're from and tell us about that law enforcement lineage in your family. Yeah, I so appreciate you inviting me on here. Um, you know, for those people who know, I was born in Guyana, South America, the only English speaking country, um, land of many waters, land of six races. And um, my dad was a police officer in Guyana. In fact, uh, he was a motorcycle officer. And then he um, became the bodyguard for the president. And when we immigrated from Guyana to Toronto, um, we moved to an area where um, I had the police academy right next to where I lived. And every day I would see the guys run and march and do their whole training. And ever since I was a little kid in third grade, I knew what I wanted to do when that officer came into school and spoke to me. I saw the shiny leather and, and the way that they carried themselves. And then, um, you know, I listened to my parents. They were nurses. All I, all I knew was a life of service, watching my parents grow up and servicing the community. And um, my dad convinced me right out of high school 
uh, to go to, to the military, the army. He goes, you want to make sure you learn the best in life, go join the army, be all you can be. And I did that. I was an infantry soldier. And, and when I came out, I got into law enforcement. I spent my first year and a half in corrections where I learned a lot about cultural diversity, interpersonal skills, how to talk to people. And then I got into to, to law enforcement. And, and you know, this country has been great for me. I've been living here 35 years. Um, I call myself a double minority, you know, um, immigrant and being an African-American. And the fact that, you know, I, I've been able to accomplish everything I wanted to do, be a, a police officer, rise through the ranks, work for the city of Miami as a major in charge of the training facility, and then came back to be the police chief of one of the best agencies that I think that's out there for Miami-Dade Schools Police Department. Um, and my son, my son decided in his junior year in college, this is what he wanted to do. And uh, he joined us and uh, he went to the city of Miami and uh, proud to say after seven years this year, seven years this month of September, um, he spent three years in homicide. He's currently a sergeant in Model City. Um, so, you know, it's in our blood. It's about giving, it's about service. And um, when you retire, you just don't throw that away and walk away from it. Um, you know, I have a stake in the game. I have a stake in the game from the standpoint of, you know, um, this career, this industry, uh, this country matters to me where we're going. It really matters a lot. Wow. And let me, I got to get personal and I've never done this on my Game of Life podcast, but let me get a little bit more personal. Uh, sitting in my office every day is this. My uncle, the late Deputy Sheriff Gary Claypool, one of my mentors, who taught me how to catch a football, who taught me how to stand up straight and speak up straight. He was a very proper man. And when I spoke at his funeral out in the beautiful uh, Bay Area, and they had all the horses lined up and every single law enforcement uh, entity in Southern California, in the, in the Bay Area, in the Valley of, of Southern California, I should say, it was one of the most moving things I've ever experienced in my life. And I just cried and talked about him. And then they handed that flag to my mother. And the flag was then handed to me from my mother. I'm a baby boy. So it is personal. It is deep. And so having brothers like you with the family, uh, your family history in law enforcement. And so I got to just cut to the chase with you because we, you're always, you, you always tell it straight. It breaks my heart, Chief. When I hear people respond to Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, like there's some difference. You, your life matters. My life matters. You're a Black man. You, you're, you immigrated to this country. So how do we uh, address this, this rough tension, this rug, this dichotomy with, within the United States of America that people did their history? We got to tell it straight. The history of policing in America, going back to slave patrols to now racism 2020, and as kids read, and this is not in the history books. This is not, well, it's not taught. So how do we, as we learn more, can't we do better as to help humanity prevail, Chief? A absolutely. You know, um, lives matter. That's, that's the most important thing. We're all human beings. You know, all lives matter. You know, uh, my grandfather... Um, died at the age of 72 and he had 21 kids. On his deathbed, he's told my dad to go out and paint the world gray. I always remember that, paint the world gray. You know, whatever color you choose, you choose to paint the world gray. We're all the same people. I think that we have to remind our officers 
And I think uh, Chief Lopez talked about this also about the fact that how when we're interacting, people call law enforcement when something goes wrong. But when you get there, you got to be able to see that human person, see that person for who they are, and to be able to say, okay, you know, I've got to be able to deal with this situation, human being to human being first. Um, I'm investigating something here. And if I have to arrest you, there is a way to arrest you to make sure I arrest you with dignity. And not everything leads to an arrest from that standpoint. There are options in life. I mean, I read through the statute. There's nothing says you have to make an arrest on anything. It says you may, you know, it doesn't say you have to. So there, there, there are different ways of dealing with things. Um, so I really believe that uh, part of my programming I got right out of the military when I joined the law enforcement community was something called the Pacific Institute. Back then it was called Investments in Excellence. And now it's called Thought Patterns. And basically they, they basically broke it down from a, a, a psychological standpoint for you to understand about diversity and who we are and not to have scotomas in life, not to have blind spots. Scotoma is a Greek word for blind spot. We all have them. If you ever looked at the, the picture of the old lady, the young lady, a lot of us just see the old lady and you haven't really seen the young lady. And then you, that's called locking in, locking out. So we have to open up our minds to understand how to deal with the blind spots in our life and how to get along with each other uh, because we're human first. And I think that's the main issue that we've got to be looking at here as law enforcement is called to the scene. Um, and most of the times is when is something going wrong. Uh, and then to be able to, Chief Lopez said it, de-escalate, um, make the appropriate action and work with each other. But human life comes first, man. We have to think about humanity. Absolutely correct. And so key terms that are now uh, just talking points and obviously on social media, people can go on all kinds of sides, but let's just stay with humanity. Uh, Chief, you are a seasoned law enforcement professional. You've trained, and keep me honest on this, you've trained thousands of officers. Is that a safe statement, sir? Yes, it is. You have trained thousands of officers. So terms like de-escalation, uh, terms like leadership, I mean, things that we, you know that really permeate law enforcement, culture, police culture. Uh, and now when people question who polices the police, when people question uh, standards, uh, policies, uh, and terms like, he phrases like rather, she's justified, he's justified. You could take my life if I threaten you and you're justified. Chief, I need you to help me. I need you to help our audience. I need you to help the littles, the kids who are saying, hey, because these are future, some of them, uh, we have many littles who are future law enforcement. We have littles who are in law enforcement. Help us understand from a training standpoint. This is your wheelhouse, I know. And you don't have two hours. I know you can go, brother. <laughs> but, uh, but just help us understand the importance of police culture uh, as we seek to address, you know, when people say systemic racism, I love how you address this. So you all stay tuned for Professor Chief Moffat to break this down. Help us understand, brother. Yeah, so, so it starts with leadership. You got to have leadership in the head of the agency. You have to have leadership in the mayor, the city manager, the commission. They must lead by example from that perspective. You know, they've got to provide funding for training and professional development. Uh, historically, law enforcement, in my opinion, does not provide the proper funding for this because of, oh, I've got to put so many people on the street to cover the beat. What about the person who calls out? So we have a backfill problem when it comes to making sure that we provide training 
and actually funding the amount of people to be working so that we can get people to train. So Pacific Institute teaches us that I can change your individual behavior within 21 days, but it takes a culture and organization 18 months to turn it around minimally. So a police chief's tenure in this country is about 3.8 years, 3.8 years, you know? So I look to the fact of how do, how do we change that? I did five years as a police chief, a wonderful organization I work for, but we have to look at some of the things of how do we get the leadership to be ingrained like Chief John Timoney was for almost seven years in support by the city and the mayor and the city manager. Seven years, he did an awesome job with the city of Miami over there because he had the ability to deal with that culture, what's deep rooted. Um, so I propose that we need to be looking at things like, number one, elected chiefs, the people elect them. There's two small agencies in the state of Florida where the chiefs are elected by the people, not just the sheriff, but the police chief. Or we look at instances like um, Sunrise PD, where the police chief actually answers the commission. So there's seven commissioner members. So that person answers the commission. So the police chief has the leadership and the backing of the commission and the leaders to do what they need to do to make that organization better. So let's talk about culture now. Culture is the policy. Then you take the policy and you train on the policy and then you enforce that policy. That means when people do wrong, you discipline them. You can't be afraid to administer discipline. You have to constantly evaluate your policy and then start the cycle again. That's why accreditation is so important in law enforcement organizations because it looks at all that. You remember, culture is just the tip of the iceberg. You see what's on top. When you dig down deep within the organization, you see what the culture is. So what do I push? What do I stress? Professional development. You know, in this state of Florida, a police officer is required 40 hours of training every four years. I'm like, really? 40 hours of training every four years? In my opinion, it needs to be 40 hours of training a year, okay, a year. And it starts with things like scenario-based training like we did in the city of Miami. We put you through scenarios so that you understand about de-escalating and not about it's because I can shoot or it's because should I shoot, are there other alternatives? So the only way that you're going to understand that and understand your policy is through scenario-based training. And you've got to provide that constantly, constantly, constantly. And it can't be done every four, every, every four years. It's, it should be 40 hours every year, in my opinion. Wow. Vote. Because it's not just the police chief. You're talking about uh, every aspect within the political uh, framework, if you will, local, uh, state, uh, and certainly federal government. And so not only that, Chief, let me ask you this. Here's a scenario. Police standards, local policies, local laws. And if I can be shot dead lying in my bed, Chief, you got to help me understand this. When in the Breonna Taylor case, uh, I know you, you know, you're a law enforcement professional from a training standpoint, Chief. How do we avoid that? Let's say I've made a mistake. Let's say I've been uh, associated with folks who have a history with law enforcement, but I am lying in my bed and now I am dead and it's justified from a police standpoint. I need you to help me. Yeah. I mean, this is things that troubles me on what happens, the things that I've seen on TV and I read about and I talk to different people about. Um, so the bottom line is I, I believe in this. We need to have a national use of force policy and standard um, we need to have 
a national law enforcement accreditation standard. You know, the way the constitution set up, we don't have a national police force. You, you, I've worked with other countries, been there. We don't want that. But what we need to have are standards and guidelines that a local law enforcement officer has to be certified for. And how do you hold the local agency accountable for that? Number one is you give them an incentive. If you want federal funding, if you want federal support from the FBI, access to intelligent information, you need to adhere to these standards and have a standard associated. So we need to, in my opinion, have somewhat of a, a national law enforcement czar, a separate entity that looks at this. I mean, we have not looked at policing practices um, since the Donson era. We had President Obama that came out with some wonderful uh, 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 ideas, seven-step plan that we need to go back to and take a look at. But we need to have, and the feds don't like to have standards, but I believe that because law enforcement is such a grave uh, career that, like my predecessor, my, my former chief there, uh, Edwin Lopez said, current chief, you know, we're giving somebody the ability to take somebody's life away and we don't have enough training and policy. So let me talk about that a little bit. So we have something called stand your ground in the state of Florida. Stand your ground applies to me, you, the normal citizen and the law enforcement officer. Most cops would tell you stand your ground is a very bad law because stand your ground says I can stand my ground in my home and in the public and I don't have to retreat. Okay. The law enforcement statute says a law enforcement officer does not have to retreat when making an arrest. And with stand your ground, the officer does not have to retreat when it involves with the use of force. So that's when we have policy now. Policy is to curb and to guide that person to make sure they don't go over the extent of things that we're seeing. So if you can't get them uh, criminally charged, there are administrative actions, what I call pow pow on somebody, and people will think twice. Usually people who get pow pow, they don't come back and do it again. Uh, the agency gets sued, the person may get sued. So you have to look at there's criminal, which we just saw the grand jury did not indict, okay? They did not indict, the grand jury did not provide indictment on those officers. And now we have to look at administratively and also civil cases against them. Did they violate policy? And those are some of the things that I'm doing now afterwards. I'm, I'm a law enforcement expert. I, I provide expertise on, 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 on use of force situations. Could they have done something else? What does your policy says? When was the last time you looked at your policy? These are the things that I'm stressing a lot about when it comes to law enforcement practices and reform. There's a lot of things we need to be doing with reform a lot of the steps we've taken here in South Florida that we can lead the way on. You are, I mean, just, we're here with uh, re retired Chief Ian Moffitt on the Game of Life Mentoring Podcast and our community conversation. Uh, in life, everybody makes the team, but how we play is up to you. Uh, Chief, let me ask you this. Uh, so you're saying that it's possible that Police Department A, Police Department B, and Police Department C could have three distinct protocols, policies, with no uniformity, if you will, and depending on that local leadership, depending on the state leadership uh, and po politicians included, you could have three different situations where you're justified to just go ahead and just uh, a no-knock warrant over here. And this one you're saying, no, we don't do that in police department B. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically the law gives broad range ability for a law enforcement officer and even the public to you know, stand your ground. But then 
each agency has a policy on how they govern because you because based on usually a lot of times there's a policy named after somebody because they did something wrong okay they, they named the policy after them so we had, need to guide that so what happens is i think miami dade is a great example you know i'm the previous president of the miami dade Teachers association to see the agencies get together and put out a unified stance on how they're going to approach with de-escalation the use of force and things that are there this community, to me, between Miami-Dade and Broward, tremendous leadership in this area because this is what we need to be working with. 30-something agencies in Miami-Dade, 30-something agencies in Broward County, but yet still they're able to communicate because they have to work together. And yes, it can be separate. We need to codify that, bring it together, um, have incentives for operating under that policy and training from that aspect. And that's just what's happening around the country. You see that tremendously. It comes down to a lack of professional development, a lack of oversight, a lack of leadership, and a lack of what I call active supervision of supervisors on the scene of most of these situations. And so what's, what's powerful about what you're saying is, but what's also a little alarming as a black man, and many of our littles look just like you and me. And the kids are scared because they don't know. Uh, and police officer A could pull me over uh, and because of who I am and the work I do with law enforcement, I got every single police chief, including you, in my phone. Not everybody has it. I can, I would tell, I tell my kids, I scare them with this too. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, as a daddy, I'm like, you know what? My daughter went to an eighth grade dance. I said, okay, I would, I would, I would text uh, Chief Moffitt right now and get a helicopter over the dance. You need me to do that? So I, I, I literally said that. So I, I'm just telling, I'm sharing that openly and honestly. But in all seriousness, sadly, status, connectivity, relationships, networking can really be the difference between life and death for so many children, adults within communities of color. And the, the anger that has brewed, and certainly the anger is justified when a mom is saying goodbye to her child or a, a wife is, sees her husband shot or a child. God knows the anger is real. But here's my question. Uh, when you hear, uh, defund, when you hear, eliminate, you, you have a history of law enforcement, your whole family, uh, law enforcement, your dad and your son. I was mentored, I got law enforcement in my family. Uh, so reform, transform, defund, eliminate. Talk to us, Chief. Yeah, so this is the, where, where, where the rubber meets the road. This is where action comes into play. And I have the opportunity to uh, interact with a lot of professional uh, sports teams now. And I like the message I'm hearing. Okay, enough talk. What actions? So here are some of the actions. You know, defunding the police is not the answer. Okay, that's not going to happen. It's not going to work. But holding the police agencies accountable for their policies and their culture is the, is the way that we do it. We need to examine their hiring and retention. So hiring is important, but also retention. Um, we want bad cops gone. And when a administrative law judge overturns a, a police chief's recommendation to fire somebody, it, it hurts. You know, it hurts from that perspective because we know they violated the policy and, and the administrative law judge overturned it. And that's a system that we, that, that we live and work in. We understand that. I believe in 
broad use of body cameras. We've got to institute body cameras. We need it. If agencies don't have it today, they better start getting it tomorrow. I think that uh, the, the professional development that I spoke about is very, very important. Um, following accreditation standards out there, um, that national use of force standards needs to be occurred. There's a task for national certification. So if I give you a certification, I can take your certification away because you, you did not adhere to these national standards. So I really believe in that aspect of it. Um, we've got to do more partnerships. I like what the Miami Heat's doing. Miami Heat's partnering with the city of Miami to provide training that came out of DC from a brother who created a curriculum. That's an awesome curriculum. And they're partnering with them. So I, you know, I like the fact about what we do with the bigs and blue and the 5,000 role model, all these organizations. You know, you and I got taught by our, our parents about 10 and two on what to do when stopped by the police. Right. I've taught my son, you know, I'm gonna have to eventually, you know, he's gonna have to teach his son, you know, about this. But at the same time, we need to be able to be teach law enforcement about how to interact with minorities when stopping because of that fear. And it's not just kids, it's adults that are still in fear of cops. You know, I've talked to a lot of people who are afraid of police, what they've done, and there are bad apples. We need to seed out those bad apples. How do you do that? Number one, have access to an app that provides anonymous tips that comes in. Um, I've got a great app right now called Safer Watch app. I urge you to download it. it. Goes to your local law enforcement. You can be anonymous. And then when that tip comes in about that bad cop, if you want to be anonymous, the agency head should have the intestinal fortitude to open up an investigation on that person. Early warning systems. This gentleman, this officer, I won't call him a gentleman, all those excess uses of force, and then he ended up with Mr. Floyd and killed Mr. Floyd. What was he doing in that police department? Why weren't they measuring his use of force and having an early warning system? These are the things of police reform that we need, that agencies need to start doing and being proactive. I'm proud to tell you that when I was a police chief, that 100% of the internal affairs investigations I opened up resulted in 100% of discipline. The vast majority of those people were terminated or they resigned or we filed charges or whatever it was, but we resulted in discipline. Leadership cannot have um, uh, the lack of not being able to go forward and discipline people. Just like you want to praise them, you got to be prepared to discipline them. We need to bridge that gap. Um, so partnership, partnership. What you're doing with the Bigs and Blue and other organizations is a great example of partnership, of building the gap. I need you to talk to the Big Brothers, Big Sisters Nation. Let me tell you something. We've had internal discussions uh, and it's never been in question in Miami. But there are affiliates nationwide. I won't mention the cities because that's not that's not my business, but I will share. I've been a, a part of conversations within the Big Brothers, Big Sisters uh, of America conversation where some affiliates are saying we may not do bigs and blue anymore because it's just creating too much attention. Let me be clear. Miami, uh, not only did we start it with you, we will always stand with law enforcement, always promote mentorship. So if you had the if you were on stage right now. And to all my brothers and sisters and affiliates throughout the country, just like police departments, you run your shop, I run mine. But here's the bottom line. Chief, you have the mic. You're on stage at the virtual Big Brothers, Big Sisters of America conference talking about bigs and blue. What do you say to them? I say, how do you build relationships? How do you build trust with law enforcement community? You attract people who are brown and black into this profession. How do you do that? Bigs and blue does that. It creates our partnership. It breaks that trust. And you know what? Attracting minorities into this business provides them to go into leadership roles and to change. Leaders make change. Anybody can sit in a seat. 
but it takes real leaders to create action. We need to have more black and brown people and even females into this role. Bigs and Blue is the vehicle for that. Get on the road and be involved in it because that's the only way change is gonna occur. You talked about real leadership and I'm talking to a real leader. Brother, you know how I feel about you, man. I love everything about you. You are the real deal. Uh, we will, not only will Chief Moffitt train uh, my staff here at Big Brothers, Big Sisters, we're gonna set something up for training the bigs and littles. You are a wealth of knowledge. We are blessed to have you in Miami-Dade County, in South Florida. And I just can't thank you enough for taking time out uh, of your busy schedule to just be a part of the Game of Life Mentoring Podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. And, and one important point I forgot to mention, mental health. Our law enforcement officers need mental health training so they can recognize mental health, understand that it's a medical condition and get the resources to help people and not deal with them with the way we've been seeing in the media right now. So mental health is important. I really believe in it. We've got to get mental health awareness, just like we do CPR. Every first responder needs to have mental health training. I want to give that plug. No, thank you for sharing that, because that will be part of the training. Uh, I'll be calling you next week, and we're going to set the schedule so you can go ahead, because this is, lives are at stake. Yes. Mental health, very important. Chief, thank you, Jeff. Chief, uh, to, you, to you, your family, I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you for standing with us, brother, and all that you do. Thank you. Take care. Coming up next, you see the name on the screen, but I'm not going to bail him just yet. Uh, an incredible alumni big brother, an incredible person, uh, the one and only Matt Hagman. We're going to take about a 60-second uh, break. I'll be right back. I got to get my hair right. We'll be right back on the Game of Life Mentoring Podcast, where everybody makes the team, but how you play is up to you. Vote. Take the census. Get counted. Because doing nothing is just far too costly. We'll be right back. We are back. What a day. Wow. Real, raw, but most importantly, from the heart. Uh, men who have dedicated their lives, human beings who have dedicated their lives to public safety are telling us straight up that mentorship works. We know that here at Big Brothers Big Sisters of Miami. And I will say again, as I said earlier, 56% uh, if you ever imagine your child coming home with 56% on their assignment or on a test, you would say unacceptable. Let me get you some help. That's the number currently for the Miami-Dade uh, census. Those who have 
uh, taken the census, 56%. That is unacceptable. Please be counted. 10 years uh, will be what we get in terms of funding and resource in Miami-Dade County is predicated upon those who take five minutes to complete the census. So please be counted, take the census. If you have not already done so, please register to vote. Your voice counts, your life matters. Speaking of a life that absolutely matters and a guy that I just absolutely love, I am pleased to welcome to the stage, welcome to the show, uh, alumni big brother, uh, Matt Hagman. Matt, go ahead and share that video, brother, if you are able. Let me see if I can help you out here if I need to. Let's see, here we go. Uh, come on in, Matt, you should be able to click that now. And five, four, three, two, one. My man, always, always sharp. I like that blue. I like that blue jacket, brother. I need, I need to know what size that is. After the show. <laughs> Anytime, Gail, it's yours. Anytime. It's great to see you. Oh, it's great to see you, Matt. I mean, you, you know, brother, uh, I appreciate uh, who you are, everything that you are about. I don't know if you were able to catch any of the previous interviews, uh, but we have- just happened. Amazing. It's just, uh, it's- real and raw as it relates to humanity. And speaking of humanity, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, just you first, Matt. I always want to get some personal context. Sure, sure. Because uh, you have a very impressive resume. Time won't permit you to go over everything, but give us an executive summary <laughs> of Matt Hagman. Then we're going to talk about a very special relationship that you are a part of. Absolutely. Well, Gail, first of all, it's an honor to be with you uh, on this really extraordinary program. And I thank you so my background is uh, born in New York, grew up in Boston and found my way in 2001. It'll, next year, it'll be 20 years, found my way to Miami, this new place where I didn't know a soul uh, and was striking out anew to work as a journalist. And I was a reporter for 10 years um, and during most of that time at the Miami Herald, then went and worked at the Knight Foundation where I led night work, night's work here in Miami. Um, uh, particularly focused around using entrepreneurship, empowering people to build the ideas and solve the problems most important to them across the community and, pl and placing a big emphasis on the fact that diversity is our great differentiator. The more we want to be more innovative, the more we can bring people together, different life experiences, different backgrounds, all of that together, the more good we're going to do and the more problems we're going to solve. And that was the effort that I led at Knight Foundation. And then for me, you were talking about how we can't stand on the sidelines, we can't sit it out. Well, you know, I went through a period, well, I'm still there, where, you know, it was just, it was for me personally, it was at a point where I was really dissatisfied with the state of our politics, feeling like that we really need a new direction. And candidly, in 2016, again, this is a personal thing, but, you know, but in 2016, after that election decided that, shoot, you know, this is, we, we're really going in a, in a concerning direction. And so with that, decided to make the leap. And so in 2017, it was a congressional candidate. As it happened, Donna Shalala jumped in midway, something none of us expected, and she won. And God bless her. She's now our representative representing our district very well in Congress, and I'm a, and a big supporter. And so now doing all sorts of things across the community. And of course, top of the list is being a big supporter of Big Brother, Big Sister. And so it's great to be here with you, Gail. That's why uh, we're honored uh, to, and I'm personally honored to, uh, when I reached out to you and your response to be a guest today, because we're talking about humanity. We're talking about relationships over and above. It's not limited to law enforcement, over and above law enforcement. No matter what your profession, uh, we need to 
treat each other with respect. How about that? And speaking of respect, uh, you are an alumni big brother uh, that we're so, so proud of here at Big Brothers Big Sisters of Miami. When did you begin your journey as a big brother? So it was 2007. And so the, what happened was it was my wife, Danette, of course, who you know well, and like me. Hold on a second. Wait a minute. You mentioned Danette. I got to stop this show. I'll just tune you in. Danette, we love you. Thank you for letting us borrow Matt. You guys are gala, uh, just recently gala co-chairs. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Danette. Okay, Matt, back to you. That was our great honor. So I met Danette here in, here in Miami. And, uh, and very quickly, when I first said hello to her the first time, she said, I don't talk to reporters. True story. So neither, thank goodness, she, uh, she finally did uh, speak to this then reporter. And in 2005, we got married and we bought a home in Coconut Grove. And, you know, it took a little while. We're doing a renovation, you know, those, those things, you know, one thing leads to another. And 2000, finally, in 2007, we moved in. And when we moved in in a home in the North Grove, I thought to myself, I want to, I would like to mentor a young man here in Coconut Grove. And I know the power of mentorship myself. I mean, I've been extraordinarily fortunate of having really amazing mentors. In fact, amazing mentors who are black men. My eighth grade football coach, my freshman football coach, freshman basketball coach, JV basketball coach, all black men who all took me under the wing and were extraordinary mentors to me. And oftentimes I think about conversations that we had now, uh, that we had then, I'll think about those conversations now. So I knew about you know, the power of mentorship because I had experienced it myself. And so I went down to your old office, you know, before you moved into the, the palace on 42nd, the, uh, the, we went down to your office on 27th, uh, you know, it was 27th and Coral Way, as I recall, and filled out an application. And they said, well, we have a, a nine-year-old on Washington Avenue in the West Grove named Joshua Job. Um, how does that sound? And I said, perfect. And I'll never forget, it was a Saturday afternoon, went down, Marion Weiss, who's still with you now, was the person who uh, did the match. And Barbara Williams, Josh's aunt, who Josh lived with, uh, the four of us sat down for the first time and talked about life. And it was there that I could see Josh, then nine years old, an extraordinary young man, and an also though an extraordinarily difficult circumstance. Seven brothers and sisters um, whose mother had had, going through a really, really tough time. And in fact, they were all going to be taken to social services. And Barbara uh, said, I'll take them all. And she took all, adopted all eight. And by the way, all eight extraordinary lives and nearly every one of them has gone off to college. And, uh, and so it was there that the journey began. And, uh, and it's been a remarkable one. And, you know, as happens with mentorship, I think as the mentor, um, honestly, I think I've gotten more out of this ex extraordinary experience um, than he, Joshua, the mentee. Well, it is a truly an incredible match that we've highlighted on the biggest of stages. And having this conversation today where you can share this incredible journey with those who may might not have attended our gala, might have never heard on our various programs, what uh, an incredible match Matt and Josh, you and Josh are. 
So tell us a little bit more about this. And let me just say this. It would, I would be remiss if I did not say, uh, may Barbara Williams rest in peace. Uh, her incredible uh, investment in those children, her incredible courage. Uh, and I still remember that, that beautiful smile when she came to many of our events. Uh, and she was so thankful uh, for having big brothers, big sisters to enhance her family's life. She took in those children. You mentioned uh, that they're all, uh, they all went off to college. Uh, and so we just had to, we just have to take time out, uh, Matt, and just thank her for what she, her incredible investment in those kids. She, yes. I mean, Barbara, an extraordinary woman, an extraordinary leader in our community. Um, and, you know, the, the, the will and the sheer grit to say nothing of the extraordinary compassion and generosity that she exhibited to them and has exhibited throughout her life is something I'll never forget. An example we'll always try to follow. So may she rest in peace. And, you know, uh, Barbara is someone the, uh, I, I mean, I'll never forget going to, so went to her, the service for Barbara when she passed at Greater St. Paul, a church that Danette and I, you know, she invited us to several times and went and to see the community turn out and the impact that she made, not only, of course, the extraordinary impact on Josh and his brothers and sisters, but the impact that she made across the community is really something, an example for all of us to remember and to honor. Absolutely, my friend. Thank you for that context. Uh, Joshua Joe. Uh, what a journey. And, but now, uh, Woogie is his nickname, right? Woogie, yes, sir. So everybody never knows him as Woogie. So now this little... Uh, now, he was nine years old when you were matched, correct? Yep. So that nine-year-old has grown up. So kind of walk us through the chronological journey of Woogie, uh, who has, is getting ready for something big this Saturday. We'll talk about that, you know, in yep. just a minute. Uh, but talk about his journey, because it's an incredible journey with you at his side. Well, I mean, Josh was someone immediately you could tell that, you know, he wanted to do something special, and he wanted to find his own way, no matter what the challenges put in front of him. And Josh was someone also very, very good in athletics and really applied himself, but especially to football uh, and immediately showed this really amazing promise. But, you know, it was interesting how he how he constantly would talk about how, you know, he didn't want to follow the conventional route. And we'll never forget. So he went to Ponce Middle School uh, and we're thinking about where to go for high school. And as you can imagine, a lot of people, a lot of people and a lot of schools across the community really wanted Josh in a big, big way. And, you know, Josh, and he had, of course, was getting lots of pressure too in the neighborhood, you know, about, hey, we're going to keep the Pop Warner team together and go off to this school. And, and Josh really wanted to do what was best for him, not only athletically, but also academically. And I'll never forget when he said to me, he said, I want to go to Columbus. This is a private school, you know, and I, I how are we going to do that? And we went off to the, the open house and, uh, and thought, well, let's put our best foot forward and see how we can do this. And, uh, and so went and then reached out to as many people as could across the community. And we met with a person named Brother Kevin, uh, who at the time was in charge of Columbus. And they said, and he said, we'll give him a shot. He said he has to come to summer school. Uh, he has to be here, I think it was 7.30 every morning during summer school uh, to take classes. Uh, and as long as he performs well in those classes and then he'll head into the fall and he has to go to study hall before practice. So he can, if he can do all that, 
then he's fully enrolled uh, and, and, uh, and off he goes. And Josh did all of it. Of course, this is not easy. I mean, this is in the environment Josh is in. I mean, just the transportation issue in the morning, getting up super early, getting on that bus, going out in this case out to Westchester, not, not easy, really hard and requires such a level of commitment. Josh did it. And so Josh, you know, through in Columbus was, and I have to give them credit. It was a, an enormously supportive environment uh, for Josh. And so Josh from there, he did a brief stint uh, at a place called Cheshire Academy um, because it, we're at a point where Josh had been held back and also because of the, of the FCAT, he actually wasn't eligible to play sports his senior year. Getting into the issues where I understand FCAT, we don't wanna socially promote kids. But on the other hand, there's a social stigma when you keep them back too, that we really need to think about. And so we looked around, where's a place he can go for his senior year and also play football, something that's so important to him. Uh, and a prep school up in Connecticut raised their hand. I'll never forget flying Josh up where we saw snow for the first time. We went up in January, said, Josh, are you ready for this? This is gonna be really cold. And he said, I got this, I can do this. And he did. And so from there, he did so well. I mean, he graduated, of course, so well, not only academically, but athletically that the University of Alabama offered him a full football scholarship. And today, he is a junior at Alabama. He's traveling to Missouri to, to where he'll be starting tomorrow night at 7 p.m. for the opening game over the University of Alabama versus Missouri. And there he'll be, number 28. So for all watching out there, look for number 28, Joshua Job, 7 o'clock. I think ESPN is going to have it. And I can't tell you how proud I will be to see him out there starting for Alabama. Let me tell you something. And, you know, we, I had to address this at the gala as well. I know here in Florida, uh, so I've heard. I, yeah. I know, you know where I'm going. People are passionate oh, about their football teams. But let me tell you something. That's why this podcast is called The Game of Life. Because everybody makes a team, but how you play is up to you. The bottom line is everybody, regardless of your favorite team, everybody needs to root for number 28 for the University of Alabama alumni little brother, Joshua Joe. Very, very important. Let me just go ahead and uh, correct this here for a minute. Uh, all my guests are coming in a little bit early today. That's a good problem to have. <laughs> your host. Uh, so I got another, another alumni little, uh, big brother coming. Let me say it again. Uh, number 28, University of Alabama, uh, Joshua Joe, everybody, get your pom-poms, get your popcorn ready, and root for that young man who's had an incredible, incredible journey with this incredible big brother, uh, Matt Hagman. Matt, so I'm so pleased with that. Let's pivot. Yeah. It's, go ahead, sir. Go ahead. Well, just to highlight that, I know when he went to Alabama, there were a lot of broken hearts here in Miami. But, but it, this has been a really a terrific um, situation for him uh, that has gone extremely well um, and just couldn't be more proud of him. And, of course, I'll be rooting for the U tomorrow night also against Florida State. And uh, hopefully we have a twofer that uh, Josh has a terrific game out there. And then we also see the, uh, the, the, uh, the University of Miami bring home a win as well. I apologize for the dogs. Look like someone just came home. That's all right. Maybe it's Danette. She can pop in and say hello. That's live TV, my friend. It's That's okay. The uh, dogs are always welcome. We are a pet-friendly uh, <laughs> podcast. That's for sure. And I love that uh, you definitely have been in politics. I love how you broke, brought UM in there until we're rooting for the Canes. <laughs> 
Seminole. We got littles all over the place. So I love every school where there's a little brother, little sister, and we root for them. Uh, and you no matter what, because we want them to be successful. I know Absolutely. you can relate to that, brother. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I, can I share one thing? Sure. No well, worries about the can dog. Can y'all hear that? Can y'all hear the dogs? Okay. It's all good. It's nice. Who let the dogs out? We're going to play that song probably coming up. Go ahead, brother. Well, no, I know the whole conversation is around policing, you know, and race and this moment we're at right now in our country. And, you know, the thing that I want to, to share, particularly from my experience with Josh, is that what was so evident and so apparent is just the enormous pressure that young black men and particularly someone like Josh, the enormous pressure they're under. Now, what do I mean by that? What the point that I'm trying to make is, is that the way things are right now is someone like Josh has virtually no room for error, right? That is that if, that if something goes wrong, that there is really, I mean, it's, there, there is little room there. Whereas in all candor, you know, a, uh, you know, a, uh, a middle-class white kid gets a DUI, for example, you know, that might be a bump in the road, but life goes on, right? And some with someone like Josh, um, you know, that can be something that can get in the way of getting into that high school he wants to go to or that college scholarship that he would like to have. And, and so that the enormous pressure that, that, uh, that they are under and they feel, and honestly, the, the unfair situation that they're in, that, that Josh is in, that Josh has had to experience. And so, and I know that, you know, that this is part of the, the conversation about policing and community police relations, which is having a great appreciation for that. You know, we, I mean, I remember the time there was, you know, when there was a, a, um, I remember one day we had gone to, you know, um, I mean, you wanted some candor, right? So, so yes. yeah. no, man, I would I want nothing less. Go ahead. Um, the, you know, I remember that we went to one day, we one Sunday, we went to Greater St. Paul Church with Barbara. And then afterwards, Josh went to the playground to play basketball. And, you know, we went home. Something happened. I don't know what, you know, but, um, but there was some scuffle, you know, on the playground. This happens. I went through that. You're right. We all, you're right. These things happen. Well, a couple, you know, a week later, uh, police show up Josh's school and they arrested him. And I immediately thought to myself, wait, what? They know where, you know, they know where Josh is, where Barbara lives. Reggie, Josh's dad has become a dear friend. They know, you know, why, what is this about? Why isn't there a conversation, you know, how they sort of dropped into a school and doing this. And here was that moment, right? Here was that moment on this amazing story, journey that he's on already, this incredible trajectory, you could feel that, where here's where it's sort of, here's where things say take a turn, right? Uh, or not. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, Danette said, oh, you should call this, this, uh, this attorney. And I forget reaching out to a local attorney who would take the case pro bono. We're not seeking any special favors. All we were seeking, though, is just a fair representation so we can understand what happened. I wasn't there. You know, none of us know what happened. Um, and so we found somebody, a person named Mickey Ratson, attorney who's practicing today, who said, Matt, if he's worth your time, he's worth my time. He took the case pro bono. 
These are the heroes, of course, that are part of young people's lives just by saying, yes, I'll do it. I'll give some time. Yes, I'm enormously busy, but this is important to me and I'll take a minute. And she did that. And all we said is, let's find out what happened. You know, we're not asking for any favorite treatment. We just want to know what happened and we're going to have someone who can represent him so we can get to the bottom of this. Well, by asking that, they immediately said, you know what? There wasn't anything here. Every, all chart, every, this was all dropped and we were done with it and we could move on. But that was that moment, right? Where that's the story that we're telling about how tomorrow night, how we're, and we're, and we're celebrating, we'll all be so proud of how a big brother, big sister of Miami mentee will be taking the field in an SEC football game, seven o'clock starting on ESPN. Well, there was that moment where it could have take, taken a turn over some schoolyard incident that honestly, you know, that I think for so many just life would go on, right? And, and by, the, by the grace of uh, an individual in our community who was willing to take some of, of her time to get to look into this, then this amazing success story was able to continue. And so, but it goes to me about the enormous pressure, right? That that moment could have been that 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 moment that sort of that that point where you, where you, where the trip becomes not only a trip but a fall, right? Rather than a strip trip, and you just keep walking, keep going. Matt, and uh, so, thank you for such candor. As a white man, matched with a little black boy, and he is family. I see you and Danette and Josh and. Of course, and when people say, I don't see color. No, I want people to see me as a black man, see you as, a, as, me as an intelligent, caring, passionate black man, and you as an intelligent, caring, passionate white man. Diversity, like you said, is a, is a beautiful thing we should embrace. Absolutely. But here's the thing. You stuck by that little guy's side. And he could have easily been Joshua Job, inmate number 28, if you had not intervened another black man in jail because he got into a, a scuffle on a playground. That's now, right. it might have been over whose ball it is, who took, I mean, you'd followed me. I mean, last time I checked, and certainly you and I know playing sports growing up, that happens all the time. But to be not only embarrassed in school, arrested while in school, yep. that could have been it for Joshua Joe. That could have been it. That could have been it. And though, and there are, and it just makes me think how many stories, you know, are, are, are there like that where that young man isn't taking the field tomorrow? You know, that young man isn't sitting in class uh, this week uh, working towards his or her, his degree. Um, and that's where big brother, the work of big brother, big sister is so important, you know, and it's one person at a time. It's one person at a time, one mentor who's willing to take the time to work with that mentee and stick by that mentee through thick and thin. Matt, I just, I got to, I mean, you just uh, have been so uh, generous with your time. And I just, uh, ally is not enough to describe you. I mean, your family, you are part of our big brothers, big sisters family, but thank you. And not just you, Matt, but for all those out there. Our next guest uh, also, <clears throat> what a tremendous ally for just taking time out to help somebody else. 
But I got to ask you one last question. Sure. Uh, when you see the overt racism, the systemic racism, you see what you see my background stand with us against racism, all forms of prejudice, bigotry, injustice, discrimination, uh, because we big brothers, big sisters, we help all children and we will match those children. We thank the Barbara Williams of the world for trusting us with their child. Uh, if they have that guardianship or they're the parent, biological parent, you trust us. So thank you for that to all the parents of all of our littles, but to all of our bigs like you, man, taking time out because it's a two, that's community. And so the last question I have for you is seeing some of the, the divisive language and sadly things have been politicized. And uh, as we just move forward as humanity, as we seek to move forward, man, why big brothers, big sisters, and how does it make you feel uh, as it relates to some of the challenges we have? Well, this is a moment to lean in. And this is a moment where the change is built on each one of us. It's not looking to anybody else. It's on each of our shoulders. And Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Big Brothers, Big Sisters is the place that provides that opportunity to make that real change by connecting, by changing a life. And the only way out of this, as I said a minute ago, the, our only way forward is one person at a time ground up, right? By engaging with that, by one individual. If you do that once, the multiplier effect is dramatic. And that's what Big Brother Big Sister does. And that's why I'm proud to, to be a part of it. And that's why though, but now more than ever, I mean, candidly, I thought, you know, and obviously it was wrong. I thought we had, we had come further than we, than we have. But that doesn't mean that we get discouraged. That doesn't mean that we slow down. That means that now is the time that we double down. Right now is the time that we lean in even more. We take even greater responsibility. We don't fear having to commit more time. We don't fear having to commit more resources, having to stretch a bit more, you know, now, and, but it's on each one of us and big brothers, big sisters is the place in the community that gives each one of us that opportunity to make that difference. I tell you what, I don't know what you want to be when you grow up. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if it's in politics. Well, you, we never let you go in big brothers, big sisters. So I don't care if, if it's the board. I don't know what, whatever you want to be when you grow up. I've told you this before privately, but now I'll say it with everybody watching. Whatever you want to be when you grow up, Matt Hagman, I'm right there with you, brother. Yeah, I love you. Love you too, thank brother. You. Have a great weekend. All the best. Send our love to Danette and the dogs. Oh, uh, thank you, Gail. <laughs> Seven o'clock tomorrow. Seven o'clock tomorrow. Let's go. 28. Let's go. Seven o'clock tomorrow. They play Missouri, right? Is it Mizzou? Yes, sir. Mizzou, seven o'clock. All right. Number 28, University of Alabama, little brother Joshua Joe, and his incredible big brother, Matt Hagman. Thank you, Matt, for all you do. Have a great weekend. And thanks for joining us on the Game of Life Mentoring Podcast. Thank you, Gail. God bless you. God Thank bless you, brother. Coming up next, uh, we have uh, another alumni, big brother. Uh, we'll introduce them in just a second. We're going to take about a 60-second break, and we will be right back with our last guest of the day. Thank you all for who have joined in, listened in, because today is all about relationships. Every time we get together on the Game of Life Mentoring Podcast, it's about helping reinforce humanity. Uh, we have so many things that divide us, but when it comes to mentoring, we should all be in the game. Uh, and so, as I said before, I will say again, 56% of Miami-Dade County has been registered for the census. And that's not enough. Please, by September 30th, be counted. 
because you matter. If you have not registered to vote, October 5th is a deadline. Register to vote. Be accountable and make your voice count. We'll be right back in 60 seconds. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back. Our final guest of the day. Uh, we want to uh, certainly welcome an alumni big brother uh, and just a great guy. Uh, there he is. Jason, how are you today, my friend? Go ahead and unmute. Uh, make sure you're unmuted there. Yeah, I just want to say, how are you, Jason? Doing great, Coach Gail. Thank you for having me and Andrew today. Pleasure oh, to no, be here. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Now, you got your little brother with you today as well. Uh, yeah. Let's Let me connect to him to make sure he's connected. Sorry, he's on the other uh, computer here. That's all right. Take your time. Take your time. We will, we will pause for a little. Okay. Start your video. Yeah, I muted one of your devices because they both can't be on because it will, you'll get the echo. How are you, young man? I'm going great. How are you doing today? Excellent, excellent, excellent. Uh, and Andrew, correct? Yes, yes, sir. Very good. So what I will have to do is, as I talk to both of you, since you all are in the same location, when you aren't speaking, like Jason, uh, I'll start with you. And then, so then, Andrew, you mute yours. That way we won't get the echo. This is live. Can, are you able to mute that where you are? If, if not, I can mute you on my end. Okay. I'm going to meet you right now. Uh, just, we're going to talk to Jason for a minute, but you guys keep your videos on, and here we go. Uh, and so, Jason, go ahead and unmute now. Uh, Jason's going back and forth. So let me start. We'll start with you. There we go. Jason's coming back. There we go. Sorry about that, Jason, let's talk for a minute. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you do, because you not only are active in the community, but you certainly you give back. Uh, the relationship you have with Andrew, we're going to talk about that. Uh, but just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do. Thanks, Coach. Uh, can, may I call you, Coach? Of course you can. I love it. Okay. Term, term of endearment with me. Good, good, good. I wasn't sure if I was using Coach or Gail. I'm, I'm calling you Coach. I'm a real estate agent for the past 20 years. I really enjoy that a lot. It took me about 30 jobs, to be quite honest, until I found this career. I had to fail forward in, in several different jobs. So I found something that really suited me, that really matched my strengths. And uh, interestingly, my first job was at a McDonald's, you know, doing fries when I was 16. And I did all kinds of different jobs until I landed on real estate agent. 
and I help the community here in Miami. I help people to buy and help people to sell. I've got a team and we help first time home buyers, experienced buyers, sellers, renters, you name it. That's incredible. And I must, I just got to thank you on behalf of Big Brothers and Big Sisters because I see your name quite often. And every time I see your name on an envelope, I know you've sold a home because <laughs> you give back. Uh, and again, to whatever extent you want to share, but I just want to thank you for choosing uh, not only to be a big brother, but giving back to Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Miami. Uh, just a small percentage of, of each and every home you uh, buy or sell or uh, the, the transaction. Thank you for that on behalf of the kids. With pleasure. We give back 1% of the commissions that we receive uh, with pleasure. It makes us feel good. Um, and the more we can give to you means the better what we're doing. So I love it. I hope your business is, is so successful. Uh, <laughs> not only personally, but professionally. So do we. So do we. Thank you. Thank you. Let's, let's talk about this incredible relationship between the two of you. Uh, and I love having littles uh, join us uh, because at the end of the day, I want people to see the faces, hear the voices of those young men and women who are a part of Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Miami. Uh, and so at this time, uh, Jason, you go ahead and mute. I'm going to unmute Andrew for just a second here. Uh, and so here we go. Uh, and so let's see, are you able to unmute there? It's, I'm asking you to unmute. You, got, you have to be the one to hit that button. That's the microphone. If you're able, Andrew, Jason's going to come to help you. That's what big brothers are for. We got time. No worries. We're, we'll get it right. For those that are tuning in, stand by. We'll get that microphone unmuted. It won't let me do it on my end. There we go. Andrew, you can hear me okay now? I hear you now. How you doing? Excellent, excellent. So tell us a little bit about yourself, young man. How old are you and what are you doing? Um, my name is Andrew Gray. I've been with Jason since I was five years old. And I work with kids at Peacock Park. And I do sanitation, picking up garbage too. That is yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. And I've been living by myself for a year and a half now. How old are you now? I'm 26 years old. 26 years old. You were matching. You were five years old. Did your mom sign you up? Who signed you up for Big Brothers, Big Sisters? I think my mom did. My mom and grandma, when she was alive, she passed away. Okay. Who, your mom, your grandma passed away? No, my mom, my grandma passed away. My mom signed me up. Okay. And my grand two of them signed me up for the big brother. Yeah. Okay. Now let me ask you this. Uh, uh, did you have any relationship with your dad at all? Um, my dad got deported to Jamaica. And he him uh he from Jamaica and my mom from Jamaica too. And he got deported when I was 13 years old. So he used to be in and out when I was a kid and stuff like that. So, yeah. And when I think about your relationship with Jason, uh, what has he taught you? Uh, I mean, you're 26 years old now. You all are still in touch with one another. 21 years later, I mean, it gives me chills. Oh, what is this? What has your big brother taught you, this incredible person? You know, uh, he taught me that, you know, if you put your mind to do something, do it. And don't never give up. And if you can help somebody down the road, why not help them? Mm -hmm. And it be you. 
and you can do anything you put your mind to. And don't never give up. You know, if you don't know how to do a thing that good at, at the net person, you know, try, still try to do it. And don't never doubt yourself. And, and it don't matter what you came from, what race, whoever, whoever you is, you, you put your mind to it, you can do it. So when I was growing up, I wasn't in regular classes. And I don't know how to read that well, but every day when I wake up, I'm happy. So, and it be you. Cause being you is the best gift you ever have. And if you're not good at something, just keep doing it and you'll get better after a while. And if you don't know how to read or not, you still got a gift. You just have to find it and you'll be all right. Andrew, you are, uh, you're getting to me, brother, because what you are talking about today, you are the courage to share your, uh, your challenges, the courage for you to share that uh, you were not in the regular academic classes with some of the challenge you had academically, but you are speaking boldly. And not only that, you are working with kids in the neighborhood where you grew up, correct? Yes. How old are the kids you work with now? Um, some like 13 years old. You know, I see I see them all the time and I and I tell them, I just ask them, are you okay? How you doing in class? You know, they tell me I'm trying. And I tell them, you know, you'll get it. If I can do it, you can do it. Hmm. I'm just like you. I ain't we the same. I struggle. To, with certain things. To this day, I still struggle with certain things, but I'm not never giving up. And I'm gonna keep going until I get it. Not giving up. You know, I done been through it all, I'm not giving up. And I thank Jason for being in my life. You know, that's my dad, that's my second dad, and I thank him. Jason, uh, man, this thing is real, brother. Uh, Andrew, if you mute, because you're going to have me crying in a minute, man. I try to keep my cool on my podcast, uh, yeah. but you are breaking this thing down. And I, man, I appreciate you for being so honest uh, as well. Uh, Jason, when we see hmm, what's happening in our communities and in our country in terms of race relations and how sadly, folks are divided or the lack of trust, the lack of respect. Uh, when someone were to say that, you know, that Andrew's life matters and others have to feel the need to respond with, well, this matters too. Well, how about just humanity? And so this match that was made 21 years ago, based on mutual trust and respect, your little brother just called you his, you're his dad. I grew up without my dad in my life. And that's what struck me when he, when Andrew said it. How does it make you feel as a big brother having such a powerful relationship? It makes me, thanks Coach Gale. It makes me feel super proud of Andrew. I mean, can you tell that he's been in Toastmasters? We put him in Toastmasters public speaking and he did four or five speeches in front of 40 people. Can you tell he had some experience right there? 
So uh, absolutely, super proud of him. It's like you'd have lunch with him every other week. And all we're doing is going to Denny's on US-1 across from UM for the last 20 years, pretty much. They know us over there. And we just have lunch. And those conversations, it might last for an hour, hour and a half, over 20 years, incredible lessons that you don't even realize it as the big brother at the time, that these are things from an early age that are formulating his trajectory. Uh, but, and, and he's taking it in. Right. He's taking in these lessons that oh, I didn't realize that he was actually implementing what I said. And, and he's he's actually believing what I say, you know, and implementing it. And I don't know everything, but I'm just, you know, I'm older than he is. so I'm going to have some more knowledge that he doesn't. But he's a sponge to to understand, OK, is this a way to live and, and inform his own way of being, leveraging his strengths? And I'm just so proud of him and the way he just communicated what he just communicated to you he, he shocks me all the time now that he's 26 27 when i see how far he's come this kid who was having trouble in school when he was younger and his mindset is stronger than anyone i know this kid has got a strong mind i mean he stayed away from all kinds of temptations that you know that everyone can experience but to his credit his mindset keeps he's able to say no he's able to say no to so many things which to me i, I don't know many executives politicians, whatever, they would have the kind of discipline that this young man has. With with that being said, and it's so funny you mentioned this leadership and so mentorship that's led to this incredible young man who's a leader, uh, helping kids, leading uh, kids and within his own community. I want you to go take me back, Jason, when you were matched and you were going to the neighborhood uh, to uh, pick him up and spend that quality time. Probably not a lot of people in there, but it looked like you, right? No, but it didn't. wasn't a wasn't a big deal for me. I said, you know, when they say, who would you like your little to be? Describe that person. I said, you know, whoever whoever you want to match me with is fine. I was open to whatever came, and uh, I only live about two miles from Andrew, so proximity was definitely there. And what's great about that, and the reason I mentioned that very overtly, is we have folks who sign up that say they don't want to go into certain neighborhoods. Uh, and I want you to uh, speak to those who may not live. And so two miles could it may, it may not seem like a large distance, or uh, but that could be night and day in Miami-Dade County. Two miles could be across the tracks. Uh, and anybody that understands what I mean by across the tracks, it could be have and have nots. So yeah. to be clear, although short distance, but you have come a long way. Thank you. I, I remember when I first met with Andrew for the first time when he was, I didn't know he was five. I thought it maybe was six or seven, but he were in the living room. I was there with, with uh, J Jennifer, what was one of the, the volunteers that helped match us. I mean, I mean, mental blank right now. I've known her for 20 years. She's been an amazing person in this process too. She used to live on the same street as Andrew. So talk about someone who's really getting into the community. She, so she was living there. And um I met Andrew, I was there with his mom, with, with Jennifer and his grandma. And Andrew came up and started playing with my hair because he hadn't seen straight hair like this. He was fascinated with my hair. And I oh my gosh, that's so interesting because th that was a new experience for him, you know? So it's, it's made me a better person. It's made me a better leader. It helped me in terms of race relations. How can it not? If, if I've got a young African-American male calling me dad, how can that not help me when I'm out there in the community? I mean, it's helped me with sellers that I've had. Like, so in terms of a trust level, 
this, there is no uncomfortable race relations when I'm trying to get a piece of business from a seller and help them sell. I need to establish trust with their half a million dollar property or their quarter million dollar property. Like just the other day, you know, I went to a house in Liberty City with this gentleman who's got a tree business. He's got a nice house that he's selling. So I felt comfortable going over there and asking if I can earn his business, which I'll find out in a couple of days if he's going to hire me or not. But the whole, the whole race relations thing doesn't come across my mind because I know in my gut that I'm, that I'm cool, that, that, that the investment that I've made in Andrew, it's, it's taught me a lot. And it's, um, I don't know, it's just helped me in business. I feel like it's helped me a lot. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Andrew, uh, Jason, go ahead and mute. Uh, Andrew, as we uh, talk about race relations, uh, as a 26-year-old Black man who uh, clearly the love you guys have for one another, the friendship, the bond, uh, the respect is just coming through the screen. Uh, what are you feeling? What do you, when you look at TV and you hear the news uh, when it comes to and knowing who your big brother is and what he's meant to you, uh, what are your thoughts as an alumni little brother on race relations today? Um, um, you know, what with that right with that right there, you know, um, it don't bother me because I love my big brother. And I, like I said, that's my, and it helped me to think he was always there for me. So that's my dad and it don't bother me. And you know, like it don't bother me. And what a, and what a police do sometimes is not right. But you know, like that's not right, but and um, cause what a what a police officer do to when he did when he do to the black the black the black um kid with the shooting and stuff and what they be doing that's not right, but it's but nobody ain't perfect, and it's not right for black to kill blacks, twenty four seven, so nobody ain't perfect at the end of the day, police officer kill blacks whites kill whites. Black kill black. Everybody still doing the wrong thing at the end of the day. If you black or white, you still killing. Nobody, everybody still killing. So they can't get mad at a white cop for killing a black person, cause a black person kill a black person every day. A white person kill a white person every day. The police kill. Blacks every day. The police kill whites every day, black or white. And you really don't see it that much because the news don't show it. So nobody ain't perfect. Everybody do wrong. So. So with that in mind, Andrew, uh, and again, I hear you, wrong is wrong. And so as we talk about humanity and helping uh, just build positive relationships, like you have with your big brother, uh, Jason, uh, and who you refer to as your dad because of the strong bond. Yeah. Uh, what positive things, Andrew, can we do? What positive things think, we say you know, to children? So we, we have to change our mindset. You know, we have to change our mindset. The world, the world unchanged, 2020 unchanged. Everybody don't look at the bigger picture no more. They just react and do things. 
So you have to change the way how you think as a human being. So if you change the way how you think and don't react to everything, the world can be better. Mm-hmm. And and it and it comes with another thing. A lot of people wake up miserable. Some people wake up not happy. Some people wake up and really don't like themselves. So when you learn to just love you, love people around you, and just help the next person, and just have love in your heart, the world be a better place. That's a, those are powerful words. Uh, love yourself, love those around you, uh, and this world is a better place. Jason, let me let me close with you. Uh, and as we think about uh, the opportunity to change someone's life. You mentioned something that we hear all the time, that you signed up to help a child, but you in turn were helped in the process. Uh, What advice do you have for individuals and or businesses as it relates to their investment of time and resources? Oh, go ahead and unmute. Go ahead and unmute, Jason. No worries. Thanks. Yes, Coach Gail. I wanted to give back when I was about 35 or so, 32, 33. So I had the choices of where I was going to put my volunteer time or money. And at the end of the day, it became Big Brother because that's where I had the biggest return on my investment. I knew exactly where the effort was going. It was going to Andrew. Not the case if I get sent a check to some organization because there's a whole lot of administrative costs, etc. But this was the one thing that I could think of that I had absolute complete control over my investment and if it was being well utilized and focused. So that's why I became a big. And over the, and I remember talking to someone in Toastmasters one time, I was like, oh, should I I keep doing it? We've been doing it for five years. And her advice to me was, you just keep doing it, Jason. You imagine 10, 15 years down the road, if you keep focusing on this, this one individual that focused effort, what that can do. I'm like, you know what? You're right. I'm keeping it simple. I don't have to be in all these different nonprofits. Sorry. Uh, sorry, I just lost you. I, I don't have to be in all these different nonprofits. I can just focus, you know, and focus is what creates a fire when you get that magnifying glass on that leaf and you don't deviate from that one leaf, that one point, that's where the true power is, the 80-20 rule, the one thing, whatever you want to call it. So Andrew has been my one thing as it relates to to giving back to the community. And I highly, highly recommend it because in the process, I have become a better person. I have become a better leader. I feel like I've become more conscious um, of what's going on around me. Well, Jason, thank you for your time, uh, your investment of resources in Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Miami. We're proud to have you as an alumni Big Brother and you will be getting some information on our Alumni Association because I want you to not only be uh, one of the active members, but I want you to be one of our spokespersons within our alumni association if you are so so inclined. Uh, Thank you, my friend. And Andrew, little brother, uh, I am just so pleased to not only have this time with you, but I thank you for uh, just speaking out, uh, sharing your story, real and raw. We are so proud of you, Andrew, and you'll be in that alumni association with your big brother, because you guys are a team. How about that, Andrew? Thank you. You're very welcome. You guys have a great weekend. We're so proud of you. 
uh, and for all of our guests, you guys stay on the screen with me as I close. For all of our guests that joined us today, Chief Edwin Lopez, retired Chief Ian Moffitt, alumni big brother Matt Hagman, and now as we close with alumni big brother Jason, his little brother uh, Andrew, today was all about community. Uh, let's keep the conversation going, but most importantly, do something because the cost of doing nothing is far too high. This is Coach Gale, as Jason calls me and many others call me as well, President and CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Miami, signing off for another community conversation. Sign up for the census, be counted, register to vote. Most importantly, be involved and get involved because in the game of life, everybody makes the team, but how you play is up to you. Gentlemen, have a great weekend and thank you all for joining us today. Take care. Thank you, Coach Gale. Thank you. Thank you.